Welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to What is the Justice and Social Justice, a series where I'll be talking to individuals about the ways that they challenge social injustice in their community, in their lives, in their neighborhoods, and in their environment. Uh, my name is Wanda Hall. I am co-founder, creative director, and playwright of Honeybeak Productions, a theater company focused on uh, challenging societal issues by building a diverse community through performance. I'm joined today by three individuals, uh, Dan Friedman, who is, who is a performance activist and community builder and artistic director emeritus of Castillo Theater. I'm also joined by David Sherry, senior vice president, youth and community development and city leader at All Stars Project of Chicago. And I'm also joined by Dylan Omari McCombs, who is a New York City-based stage and voiceover actor. So why don't we kick it off tonight with each of you just talking a little bit about what social justice means to you. Why don't we start with you, Dan? Okay, great. Thank you. First of all, thanks, Wanda, for organizing this. Uh, I think one of the key things to us achieving social justice is people talking to each other um, and, and you know, sharing their, their views even when they don't agree. Although I think we probably agree on a lot of things in this case. But it, for me, social justice in the biggest sense means creating a world in which everyone has enough material things like food and a place to live and uh, an education if they want it and enough um, cultural things uh, to, to be who they are and to learn the wisdom of the, of the ages and to be creative and creating an environment where that can happen. You know, I, as far as I'm concerned, involves doing away with the way we've organized society, which is based on profit, which is based on exploiting the earth, which is based on pitting different kinds of people against each other so that some people can hold on to their power and authority. Um, so that, that therefore also means social justice to me means engaging racism and sexism and homophobia and, and all of the hatreds that we have inherited from a system that profits off of us uh, fighting each other. Um, but there, there's an old saying, you know, that, and this has been my vision since I was 12 years old, I wanna create a world where everyone can contribute what they can and everyone gets what they need. Now, the big question is how to get there. And that's what we're all working on. And, uh, but that's my vision. Thank you. David? I, I, you know, it's interesting because for me, um, I met uh, All Stars Project uh, co-founder Dr. Lenora Falani on uh, August 21st, 1989. And by that Saturday, August 26th, 1989, um, I was invited by Dr. Falani to march in Brooklyn uh, with Reverend Al Sharpton because um, uh, that that very week, there was a, a black teenager named Yusef Hawkins who was who was murdered, you know, in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. So, um, so I mean, right from the very beginning, again, just five days after meeting Dr. Fulani, uh, you know, we started marching every week uh, in uh, Brooklyn. And part of what social justice for us looked like at that time was making sure that the perpetrators of that vicious crime, you know, uh, uh, Yusef Hawkins was chased by a mob of 30 young white men in, in Bistners, Brooklyn. And one of them named Joseph Farmer shot him at point blank range and killed him. And so frequently, uh, there have been other cases like that in New York. And often when the victims are black and the perpetrators are white, whether they're police officers or vigilantes, they often get away with it. So our, effort for social justice at that time was to make sure that the individuals are held accountable for their actions, which is what we wound up achieving uh, through the marches where the, the trigger man, Joseph Farmer, got 32 years to life in prison. And that's something that rarely happens in a case where you have a, 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 you know, a, a Black victim. Um, and, and it's, again, a, a white perpetrator, where that white perpetrator is a police officer or some some self-styled vigilante. Um, so, it, but in addition to 
marching with Dr. Filani and marching with Shockton, um, you know, I got to know Dr. Filani, got a chance to meet Dr. Fred Newman. I met uh, Dan Friedman, met so many other people in our community, and then was uh, really was discovering all the things that this community was doing, such as being involved in independent politics, such as uh, 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 you know, uh, leading the All Stars Project Youth and Performance and Development Organization. So one of the things, in addition to the social justice, in terms of getting uh, justice through the uh, through the legal system, uh, through independent politics, and through the All Stars Project, um, you know, you know, kind of going back to what Dan was saying, you know, I, I discovered some people who were trying to make a better world, you know, a world in which people you know, regardless of race and gender or sexual orientation or religion, um, where people could, you know, create something beautiful together. And that's what, you know, certainly we see in the All Stars Project, you know, we see uh, people uh, uh, building and creating and, you know, giving a young, young people a chance to uh, grow through performance. And so we take the activity and take it to another level of building something positive that is long lasting. And so here we are 33 years later, uh, at the time the All Stars Project was only in New York City and now uh, we're in uh, uh, Newark, New Jersey, Jersey City, New Jersey, the San Francisco Bay Area, Dallas, Texas. And our CEO, Gabriel Kurlander, asked me to start the All Stars Project in Chicago in 2007. So I just think that, you know, I've been able to, uh, uh, through our community really learn what it means to build something that is sustaining and build something that in which you can create something uh, with other people. And it's just been uh, you know, life-changing for me and just life-changing for so many other people. I don't have the job of following that answer, um, but yeah, uh, to me in a, uh, in a very broad sense, social justice uh, means building a uh, healthy community, building a healthy sense of community with the people around you, and uh, doing so with a focus on historically oppressed groups. Um, I think one thing to piggyback a little bit off of what um, uh, off of what David was saying is that one thing that came to mind to me listening uh, to you say all that was that uh, one journey that I've had to go through in the past few years uh, is thinking about thinking about the fact that I believe that social justice is the type of thing where you have to contribute it in the ways that you as your own individual person are capable of doing and uh, uh, want to, to do the most. What I mean by that is uh, when uh, when George Floyd uh, happened back in 2020, um, I was one of the people, honestly, for a while, I was protesting in the streets of Manhattan pretty much every day for uh, was it like six months something like that and uh that was a lot and of course I'm like grateful I'm glad that I did that at the same time when I look back on that time I think I reached a point when I realized okay <laughs> a pandemic isn't here all the time I can't realistically be protesting literally every single day there's going to have to be ways uh uh in my greater societal life that I have to figure out how I'm going to be contributing what's my contribution and one of the ways that I've uh things that I've come around to is uh, using theater as that platform. Uh, to bring it back to you, Wanda, I uh, I acted as Jack in your play, Amen, Amen. And uh, that was, that play was very special to me. And particularly the character of Jack was special to me because he was a character who had gone through so much in his life. He had been unhoused and was treated poorly by everyone. And by the grace of uh, someone who was kind enough in his life to give him housing, he was able to sort, to sort of get back on his feet and become a mentor figure to a lot of other people in their lives as they were facing their own forms of oppression. And again, that to me is what uh, what social justice is about. It's about finding ways to build that community and in ways that are realistic and good for you as a person. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because um, I think I, I, when I think about social justice, I was sort of lost for a little while. I mean, I was angry at the things that was happening out in the world, and I wanted to do something and couldn't figure out what to do. And um, I was ultimately directed towards David to kind of have a conversation about how do you 
uh, take that anger? What do you do with that frustration and that feeling? And um, David and I had quite a few conversations throughout the summer as I was writing Amen, Amen. Um, one of the things that David talked, that David and I talked a lot about is organizing. And that's something, David, that you um, are very big on. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what, you know, what organizing is? Uh, yeah, Wanda. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to do that. You know, I mean, one of, I mean, that's one of the things I, again, I learned from, you know, uh, uh, from Dr. Filani. I feel so fortunate that, you know, and thankful that I met Dr. Filani uh, when I did in 1989. And, and often I would accompany her on, you know, a lot of the, you know, marches that she participated in. So I had a chance to, you know, sit in the car with her and, and talk a lot about things and, uh, or sometimes, you know, in the office talk about, you know, the importance of organizing people, you know, uh, you know, what it meant to, um, and what it still means, you know, to, to, to help uh, direct people, to help give people a chance to be, to be active, you know, because sometimes, you know, it, it is easy to get frustrated. And I remember Dr. Filani saying a long time ago, and I still think about this a lot, um, you know, because I remember she was having a meeting with some folks and somebody was saying how frustrated they were. And Dr. Filani says, you, we don't have the luxury of being frustrated. Like frustrating is, you know, is, you know, is, 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 is when you can't literally do anything about a problem. And so the issue, instead of getting frustrated, now, sometimes you can get angry about stuff and you can feel sad about losing people or seeing the loss of life that, that unfortunately we, that we see in the world. But then what you do is you take that, that anger, that, 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 that sadness, and then how do you organize a group of the people to do something different? And I remember, uh, uh, you know, at one point, even thinking that I was too angry to be an organizer. And I remember Dr. Filani saying, you know, I don't want to take away your anger. I want you to channel that anger and do something constructive with it. And I really learned a lot about how to take that energy, that anger over racism and over bigotry and how to take all the stuff, um, you know, as again, just as Dr. Filani said, take all the crap that I've experienced and then throw it right back at these individuals. But how do you organize people so that, you know, other uh, individuals, you know, women and men of all races, you know, whether they're black or white or Jewish or gay or straight, how can you organize people to do something uh, uh, constructive instead of just sitting around frustrated, instead of sitting around being reactive to things that happen and getting angry and, and all the other things that happen is sad and, and 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 angry at people. But how do you how how can we get how can we become good organizers where we can actually take those same individuals and show them how we can work together to create something that is brand new that you know to create something you know like building the All Stars Project. So we can, you know, do something and, and have young people uh, participating in, um, in developmental activities, you know, because ultimately, you know, too many times people wait until, you know, sometimes when a black teenager is dead on the pavement and then we, you know, we're very, we, we obviously are justifiably angry at seeing that loss of life. But there are so many living uh, Black teenagers who don't have opportunities uh, to grow, who also feel frustrated, who also feel angry, who also feel isolated, who also feel marginalized. So how can we as organizers invite them into an organization like the All-Stars Project, where instead of being isolated, instead of being disconnected, instead of being uh, marginalized, where they can participate with a group of adults who are actually trying to, you know, do something to show them some developmental opportunities. Uh, so that's how I see organizing. Like how how can how can we become good at telling or or, it, or inviting, you know, 
women that we don't know or men that we don't know to be part of what we're doing. You know, like yeah. like we, we we enjoy the organized activity, but how can we invite um, uh, people to join us in doing the same things that we're doing? Yeah, I, if I could piggyback on that for a minute, I mean, I think organizing is the key to to social justice. If you look at history, all social justice comes from masses of people, thousands, millions of people getting organized and struggling, fighting in various ways for the the ju for justice. You can go all the way back, and just in the United States, you could take that back to the first American Revolution, to the abolitionist movement and the Civil War. To the uh, the labor movements in the in the 30s and 40s, uh, to the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, to the anti-war movement and all the things that grew out of that in the 1960s, there were millions of people being organized and mobilized. So that that to me is key that to realize that social justice comes from the bottom up. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes you can get people on the top to come along with you or to respond to your demands, but the power comes from ordinary people in large numbers getting organized. And then that raises the next question, what did they get organized to? I think there's many things that people can get organized to. And we've heard this evening, both from, from David and Dylan, for example, about the, the power and importance of organizing against racism in this particular case, against the violence and evil of racism. In David's case, going back to the 80s, and in Dylan's case to the Black Lives Matter movement of a couple of years ago. And that's extremely important part of what we organize for. At the same time, as David is, I think, implying pretty explicitly, and that Dylan has also referred to, what do you do after the demonstration? What can you create that keeps people engaged and keeps people growing and keeps people uh, in an environment where they can take on the fight for social justice. And I started calling that kind of work um, um, reconstructive power. You use your power to create something different, something new that works better for the people who are building it. Um, in the case of the All-Stars, for example, it's in some ways it's a response to the failure of the education system to provide a decent and growthful education to to our young people, in particular to young people of color, and but to all poor young people in this country. And so we couldn't take on the schools directly. We didn't have the, the power to do that. But what we did have the power to do was build something that allowed young people outside of school to be engaged in developmental activities, to grow, to see that they had more, they, more potential than they were allowed to believe, that they didn't have to be stuck in the social roles that society has given them, and that they grow out of that. And that let, leads to many, many, I could go on and on about the kinds of activities that the All-Stars in particular, which David and I both have long roots in, have built to give people a chance to keep growing and developing in a way that takes on the educational system by creating something better and different. And that's true also in the political arena in our community. But the, why we, the reason we do independent politics is the two old parties just don't go anywhere for the masses of people. So we have to challenge that and try to come up with something better. And that ties me back to Dylan's point about his, how he just, you know, came to realize that he, he couldn't demonstrate every day, that he is an actor, that he, he has an art form and that he can use that. And I think it's it, for social justice. And I think that's really important that if you're going to, in the long run, build some alternative to the way the world is, you've got to organize people to do what they want to do and what they can do. And if you give them an activity to, of building something together, everybody grows from that, whether it be a theater ensemble like what you've built, Wanda, or whether it be a youth program like the All-Stars has built, whether it be a food co-op, whether you know, I could go, we could go on and on, but people need to build things together in order to um, provide continuity and ongoing development to folks in the social justice struggle. That isn't to negate the, the angry, demonstrations. Those are a very important part of changing the world as well. But I think that if that's all we have, then then we stop, then the process slows down or stops after the demonstration, after you get the conviction or you don't, after you win the strike or you don't, after you make the revolution or you don't. But the, the challenge to us, I think, is to keep building and keep growing um, if we're going to sustain our 
our vision of a, a socially just world. I know I probably talked too much there, but I just, I was so I was so excited by what both David and Dylan were saying. I just wanted to to add to it. Yeah, it's very 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 nice. Um, so actually, I'm going to ask Dylan. So you mentioned the character Jack that you played in Amen and Men, um, which I love, um, and you also if you remember played um, the narrator in mm -hmm. Acclamation. And what you know, and I can't help but to feel that there was a part of you that was actually in that character, talking about um, capitalism versus socialism. How did it feel to play that kind of a role, as it relates to who you are in terms of the way the world is and social justice? Yeah, for um, for some reference on what each of those characters is like. So Jack, the character that uh, I'd first mentioned that Juan just mentioned is very, uh, by the time of, of the play, is very um, uh, very open to meeting new people and very warm and friendly. And he he, he feels to me like he, he should be like a teacher or something. Like he's a very warm and friendly guy who welcomes a lot of people in. The, the narrator in Acclamation uh, can also be like that, but for the most part, he's going on a straight rant about why capitalism sucks and like like the 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 downfalls and pitfalls of it and why like things need to change right now. He gets very riled up, like is kind of at a thousand for the entire play. Um, and I, I think that uh, <laughs> bear with me as I'm going on this, but I think that in terms of uh, playing the narrator uh, as opposed to Jack. Uh, it's kind of like how we're but we're what we're talking about right now where it feels to me that there's both a blessing and a curse with social justice work in that you need anything and everything to happen for the fight to work like you need both of those moments of being really angry and having a reason to be riled up and to to try something like new uh and, and innovative and at the same time you need something that's uh also that's much more sustainable and at the end of the day the goal that we're all driving uh driving for is a again a healthy community one that where people support each other and the systems that we have in the world support the people um so yeah so to sort of broadly answer your question it's it's funny of like of of playing both of those things both in in on stage in a real life where it's okay we need we need everything. There's room for the anger and there needs to be room for the anger and there needs to be room for the uh, the uh, sustainability as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't, I mean, there were moments I think that um, in acclimation, I, I felt like it was you, like the anger that was like coming out. It was, it was actually awesome. Um, so I think, so, so Dan, you and I, well, we actually met through, we were working together on one play serving two masters, but then I then went over to uh, work with you on stage manage Crown Heights, which is a pretty, pretty awesome play. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, what was the inspiration in writing that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, and it, and it goes back to what, what David was talking about. Yeah. It, it, it goes back to Dr. Lenora Filani and the, her, her grassroots organizing in the community. Um, in 1990, Three, there was a riot in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, which has been home since the 1940s to um, both African-Americans and Caribbean-Americans and Hasidic Jews. Hasidic Jews are the very orthodox sect that sort of, well, in my opinion, are stuck in the 16th century. But that's neither here nor there. The, the, point, is, the point is that they coexisted, but with a lot of tensions and, uh, and so on for, for decades. And then what happened one day was um, the, the, the chief rabbi of this particular Hasidic sect was coming back from uh, visiting his predecessor's grave and his driver of his limo either skipped or didn't see a red light and ran through it. And a car got out of control and went up on the street and ran over two black kids. Um, uh, two little boys, a boy and his cousin. And the, the boy was killed uh, and the cousin was severely injured. The first ambulance to get to the site was um, was a Hasidic volunteer ambulance for, as source. And they took the rabbi and his entourage to the hospital and they left the two kids there on the street. Well, you can imagine the response of the black community to that. And uh, lots of young people, young men in particular, poured out onto the streets and were, you know, were demanding justice and were also angry and wanted to 
to fight with the Jews. And um, so this, this went on for a couple, it was started one night and boy, um, Dr. Phil, you know, the most of the black leaders in the city, David Dinkins was then mayor and, and Reverend Sharpton and many others met, but they basically talked to each other and tried to negotiate something with the top leadership. Dr. Filani, in contrast, spent literally the next three days and nights on the streets of Crown Heights, talking to the young people and the police and telling the young people, what are you going to do? You're going to, you, you, they'll kill you. Don't, don't attack the police. And, and, and her being very shocked and moved and impacted by them saying, so what if I die? What do I have to live for? At least I'll be dying for social justice. They didn't maybe use that word, but that's what they meant. And then she would say to the cops, wait, you don't want to, you don't want to get provoked. You don't want to kill anybody. And eventually there, somebody did get killed, but it was only one other person, um, a, a Hasidic um, a rap student uh, who was stabbed to death. Uh, but that event put Dr. Filani in an incredible position. She, of course, she'd, she'd already been deeply respected by the black community, but there were many cops who uh, over the years would say to her, you know, thank you, Dr. Filani. I, I was there at Crown Heights, you saved lives. You saved lives. And of course, to, to progressives, the event was very upsetting, because, especially to Jewish progressives like me, because you know Jews in Europe were the persecuted minority, were the people who were uh, excluded and, and, and faced endless violence for 2,000 years. And then to see Jews and African-Americans, who are the, the primarily oppressed people in the United States, fighting each other rather than finding a way to work together was very upsetting. Um, so anyway, about seven years later, um, it was, I suggested to Fred Newman, who was the, then the artistic director of the Castillo Theater and also the, if you will, political and intellectual leader of the movement that gave birth to the All-Stars and so on, that we do what I call the, what we call learning plays. It was the 100th anniversary of this playwright, Bertolt Brecht, who came up with this form of plays in the 30s called The Learning Play, where he hoped the audience and the actors would learn through the process of producing the play. So I said, we should do a couple of Breck's learning plays. And Fred, being the creative genius that he was, said, why don't we do our own learning play? And why don't we do it about Crown Heights? So he and I wrote the script for Crown Heights, which in some ways reenacted what happened that night in the first half. And in the second half is an interesting um, said in the prison where the young man who stabbed the Hasidic student, the young black man, and meets with his social worker uh, in a series of meetings that go on over a while, who happens to be a woman 20 years a senior and Jewish, and they actually fall in love. So it's a, it's a very interesting and weird play as most of things that Fred touched were. Um, but that play, um, was we, we opened it in, in 73, when and it was the first play we did at the, the the new center on 42nd street and it was with young people and we made a point of having a mixed cast and and of and of casting across ethnicities so there were black kids who were playing hasidic kids and there were jewish kids who were playing black kids and um and it was a real talk about learning the 13 young people in and wanda i know you you lived through this who, who went through that rehearsal process and performance process, learned a tremendous amount about New York City, about racism, about anti-Semitism, about the differences between the groups. And of course it was very controversial. Uh, we got attacked a lot because we didn't toe the establishment line that it was a, you know, just a black riot against Jews, which is the, was the primary um, narrative in the press. We, we, we saw it in the way that I described it. And a lot of people didn't like that, but some people did. And there were some beautiful moments in the lobby. I remember um, they were middle-aged at that time. So they were probably my age, you know, uh, Jewish and black people who had said, oh, I haven't seen you in 20 years, you know, and, and hugging each other. Um, they both came because they were interested in the topic, but they had been separated by all this, um, these divisions among oppressed peoples. Anyway, that, that's, that was, um, to answer your question, that was the, the, the Crown Heights and that launched another youth program of the All-Stars Youth on Stage, which went on to do about 30 productions 
with young people over the next 10 years or so. Um, and I'm very proud of, of that work. And, you know, it speaks to, you know, again, to what Dylan's saying and you're saying, uh, Wanda, about theater. I think theater can be a, an important activity in the social justice movement for a number of reasons. One is that it allows us to explore things that we can't yeah. otherwise explore. Look at possibilities that are not very likely. Um, have dialogues in ways that people can't outside of the theater. And the other really important thing about it is that it builds ensemble. When people work together to put on a play, they become very close and they learn that creativity is collective and they learn a lot from each other. So that ability to both have a, a playground of the imagination, I think is really important for social change movements. And that experience of building ensemble, building a group is I think also very key to go back to the organizing question. Um, and then in the case of the Castillo Theater and Youth on Stage, it, it was a particular power because all of that was tied to a larger community building effort that included, you know, social justice and, and the All-Stars Town Show Network and independent politics. And it, it saw itself and is and was, it was then and is now part of a very long-term multi-generational attempt to build environments for social justice and that. So the Castillo Theater always had a mix of professionally trained actors and amateurs people who had never acted before. And we also just ordinary people learned how to run the lights and sound and act on stage and, and be the ushers and sell the tickets and, and organize the whole thing. And they built it. Ordinary people built that, working with theater professionals who wanted to also help change the world. That's probably more than you, you bargained for when you asked about that. <laughs> that was great. I, I, I do remember all of that. I remember the incident. I remember working on the show. I remember the energy in the lobby, I, I thought it was fantastic. So um, it, I, I do remember, remember it well. Um, but something that you mentioned that made me think about um, a man and men, um, when you talked about working together as an ensemble. What was interesting, um, Dylan, I don't know if you, if you, if you remember this, but um, we, were, we actually performed a couple of shows at my church on the Lower East Side. We were waiting for the show to start and we were like in an area kind of like talking with one another. And it, I was really touched in that some of the actors kind of revealed how much they appreciated the, the topics that were being addressed in the play. And then they actually then revealed some of the things that happened to them that was being addressed in the play. And I was, and, and it, it, it touched me, but I was kind of wondering what that might've felt like for you, Dylan. Because I, I mean, so we, for, at Honeyvik, we've produced um, four plays. And I have to say this cast by far was probably the most engaged with the, with the topic of the play and with one another and the sharing. What, what was that like for you in terms of being on the cast and the topic topics we were, we were trying to address? Yeah, I think it was uh, like, I don't mean to just give like a at risk of sounding like a generic answer, but it really truly was, I, it, I just really did feel like it was a really good team building activity beyond even just, um, I mean, I mean, cause obviously like with the topics at hand, it's, I think it's powerful to even just see social justice related topics explored in a theater production at all. Um, but particularly like, I just, I just think that with that cast in particular, um, it being so big too, and like the show having a very fun nature to it, it, uh, uh, I, I felt that we like, really again maybe it'll sound a little corny but like we I felt that we became like a really good team uh dare I say like maybe a theater family uh we're still in touch actually but uh yeah it's um I mean I felt like that we had just become friends out of it and that I felt that we learned about uh each other's experiences um uh like through even talking to each other outside of the cast uh to tell the truth um th this topic was not explored in in the play uh but I ended up even sharing uh, some thoughts that I had about um, like my grandfather. Um, I'm I'm a Japanese on my mother's side uh, and white on my on my dad's side. But I ended up just like telling some stories about uh, about my grandfather uh, and what he was going through during that time and how that I think shaped his political views coming out of uh, that era. Um, and that was something where I thought to myself, huh? I 
that topic wasn't even in the play, but yet we were able to share it with each other because of what was already given to us. So it was a great launching point to just become closer. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I was really touched and I was, what, what do you think about that, Dan? Oh, no, I, I think it, I, I hear everything you're saying and it resonates. What I was gonna ask if, is if David could maybe take the concept of ensemble building and group building and talk about it outside of the theater because the theater isn't the only place where that's important. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one of one of the things that um, you know was was a beautiful thing we just did three weeks ago. Uh, we had a, a fundraiser here in Chicago, and uh, you know, we had uh, you know we had young people, uh, you know, from the South Side and the West Side, and just to give you all a sense of what things are like in Chicago, um, you know, the Black community has been very marginalized here for a long time. You know, there's been fights that, you know, and I know, Dan, you're aware of, you know, so many fights in Chicago. And of course, it's not unique to Chicago. You know, most American cities, you know, have had this problem of, 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 of racism and racial injustice and so much poverty among the Black communities. And, um, you know, and, and, and the one thing that was, it's been beautiful for us to witness here and, and across every place where we have the All-Stars is inviting young people to do a new kind of performance. You know, we work with them on how to have conversations with uh, affluent adults, including uh, white affluent adults. And we work with them on how to, uh, you know, start a conversation, how to engage in a conversation, how to end the conversation, how to go on to the next person. So it, it's been a beautiful thing to witness young people from the South side and the West side of Chicago, again, places that have the worst education system, the worst schools, the worst housing, the worst uh, employment uh, 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 outcomes, the worst healthcare outcomes. I mean, everything about life on the South and West sides, you know, has been pretty devastating. I mean, I'm actually, you know, it's extraordinary the resilience of the black community, especially given, you know, everything that is, been done to uh, uh, done here by the uh, political leadership, really of both parties, you know, uh, you know, and 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 how this community has been so marginalized, and to see these young people from these same devastated communities, vacant lots, abandoned buildings, cluttered up uh, stores, these same young people coming downtown to participate in a fundraising event, you know, and to be able to perform at this high level. And during the event, they don't, they don't, they don't, they they don't feel the marginalization. They actually feel part of a community. They feel part of Chicago, and we give that to them. But we but we show them a new way of performing uh, in these areas. And so, um, so it's it it really is an ensemble performance that they're doing together. They they each have their own experiences of what it means to be at a high level event at a hotel and to mix and mingle, you know, in a big, big fundraising event where we're raising a half million dollars. But also to produce that meant that we did a lot of, um, of, uh, of role playing and performance activity with the group of young people so that they could perform at this level and they just excelled, you know, and so coming out of the pandemic, we just haven't had enough of those in the last couple of years because, you know, we had to shut down, but it was such a beautiful thing to witness that we're coming back to in-person activities. And I think even when we look at the violence that's taking place, a big part of, of what we have to do as a society is kind of get young people re-engaged uh, back into a society, get young people engaged in performing you know, in these type of uh, activities. But the ensemble uh, collective activity we do with young people about how to perform. And keep in mind, a lot of these young people, you know, we don't take the top performing young people. A lot of these young people are young people who are struggling in school. A lot of young people who are getting sometimes uh, uh, bad grades in school. But when they're with us, they are simply young people who have the opportunity to learn new performances in new environments and meet new people. And that gives them, a, 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 again, I'm just, I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I feel 
in the 15 years we've been doing it in Chicago, it's an extraordinary thing to see these young people uh, provide leadership uh, and learn how to perform at this high level. And then the great thing about this, uh, Juan and Dan and, and, and Dylan, talk about organizing, they organize their friends to become all-stars. You know? So it's a beautiful thing because they tell their siblings, they tell their cousins, they tell their classmates about their experiences. And then we get a chance to, to, uh, to do, um, uh, to show new young people the performance activity where they can be at a cocktail reception, they can be at a luncheon, they can be at a, at, at, at uh, you know, at someone's home. They can be in these settings where they're not used to being. And I remember, and I'll just close on this. I remember we had our, uh, uh, an event at the uh, Sears Tower, now called the Willis Tower. The tallest building in Chicago it used to be the tallest building in the world at one point, but the tallest building in Chicago. And we had this event, and we and the young people invited their parents to participate. So the young people they were going up to the to the uh, you had black young youngsters, black teenagers going up to these white business people having mixing men and conversations. The parents were kind of sitting back because they're not in this segregated city we live in. They're not used to talking to white people, but here they can see their sixteen-year-old daughter talking to attorneys and talking to CEOs and talking to senior vice presidents. And then some of the parents started following the lead of their children and started engaging in these conversations. So what was beautiful was watching this uh, multiracial event in our segregated city where the young people, because of our work with them, felt very comfortable with talking to white business people. The parents felt very uncomfortable but they said, man, if my daughter could do this, if my 16-year-old daughter could just walk up to all these white people and have conversations with them, maybe I can kind of slowly make my way over there too and have conversations. So it was just a great gathering of, of, uh, of, of, of poor uh, folks from uh, the Black community uh, and the Latino community uh, together with uh, a lot of these white affluent business people. But it was a new kind of performance for Chicago to see this kind of gathering uh, take place. The hardest thing was get everybody to go home. It's like, you know what? It's, <laughs> <laughs> the event is over. You know, the event ended at 8 o'clock. It's 8.25. They're still making around talking. It's like, because <laughs> they really, everybody was enjoying each other's company. But, um, but that's an example of taking people who normally aren't, who normally don't do things together and when you give them an opportunity and you, and, and you, and you, and you, uh, you know, do the, you know, performance activity to show first the young people that they can do it. It's just, it's just a beautiful thing to witness that. And again, just three weeks ago, you know, was our latest uh, activity, but we've been doing that for 15 years in Chicago, over 40 years, you know, uh, uh, you know, going back to the All-Stars Project in New York, but 15 years in Chicago, in a segregated city, we've been bringing, uh, you know, poor black Latino uh, young people together with uh, our white affluent business partners. Yeah, I should probably also add to that. Um, one of the things I love about All Stars, and I also work at All Stars in a different uh, department, is that I think that it does teach or show young kids that life that is a performance. Right? It, it's, it's not something that's not attainable. You just need to learn how to do that. You need to have the safe space to, to try those different types of performances. And I will say that Nikayla, I'm not sure if you knew this, Dylan, was, is actually um, a graduate from the DSY program. So, so, so Nikayla actually played, a, uh, she played three pastors in the film. She did a really, really good job at that. Um, so, so one of the things that you mentioned, David, that kind of sparked from in my mind that the parents were getting involved in that performance as well. Um, what I think, so the Amen and Men was sort of like cast in a church. And it was, and I kind of chose that for a reason. You know, I wanted to explore the idea that um, maybe, maybe there is a way that the, the Bible, there is a way that God, there's a way that origin, the religion allows for us to challenge social injustice. And um, I went through a program at my church that kind of talked a little bit about um, prophetic preaching, which I love the idea of that. And I know that you're actually involved 
in, in a religious organization in Chicago. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that organization engages uh, with social injustice? Yeah, glad to do that, Juan. It's, and just to give you the, the brief story on that, you know, I actually, I started, uh, 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 you know, I, I, I met this group uh, called the uh, Leaders Network, and I met one of the ministers. I went to the funeral, Sandra Bland. You may remember she was the woman who died in police custody in Texas, um, you know, during the traffic stop. But she was originally from uh, Illinois, so they had the funeral here. One of the ministers invited me to come to the meetings of the Leaders Network, which is a group of faith and community leaders on the west side of Chicago, of, of the founders of Reverend Hierarchy, Reverend Marshall Hatch, Reverend Sidefields. Reverend Marshall Hatch actually um, was a person who voted for Lenore Fulani for president in 1988. But I, I really developed a real friendship with them and uh, started going to their meetings. And then I invited them to um, one of those fundraising events with the All-Stars, you know, uh, uh, luncheon, and we presented them with uh, community leadership awards. So to my surprise, you know, once we started partnering with them and doing some things with them, they invited me, they, they said, well, first of all, we want you to say yes before we ask you this. <laughs> but they said, we want you to become president of our organization, the Leaders Network, which is what I, I, I serve as president of uh, other Leaders Network. So, uh, so it's an organization that advocates for racial, social, and economic justice. It's a multiracial organization. Uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the board members, we have a rabbi who's on, on our board as well, um, as well as other white and Jewish people who are members uh, of the Leaders Network. And so we're very close to All Stars Project and the Leaders Network are very, you know, we're, we, you know we've done some things together. We partnered, we partnered on a basketball tournament and, uh, and a resource fair together. And we've done some things together. So it's been a, it's been a great partnership, but it's, um, but again, it, it's, 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 it's finding some people. And part of one of the things we've been doing in Chicago, just to speak to your thing with the adults is how do we, in addition to our youth development, how do we uh, do some things to help help adults to develop? So, in addition to the work I'm doing with the Leaders Network, uh, Gabrielle Kerlander in 2015 uh, uh, said we needed to have what we call the after school development working group. So, we started doing that where we share our best practices with other adults. So. So I partnered with the Leaders Network. I part, partnered with a theater organization called Collaboration, and Dan Freeman knows about them because they were presented with an auto award back in 2019. And then we have a lot of uh, adult partnerships through our after-school development working group. So a lot of the work I'm doing here in Chicago is supporting the development of adults, you know, and how to, uh, I take all this stuff I've learned from Dr. Flani and Dr. Fred Newman and I bring that into my conversations with adults on how to be better organizers, how to be better organizers within your own organization, how to be focused, how to be giving to people, how to have that kind of leadership where, you know, where you're always training people and supporting people to become better uh, activists and organizers within your organization, you know? So it's not this top-down thing, but how do you work with people in your organization to be better activists so that they can, so, so just the passion you have for doing something, you wanna give that to other people. You don't wanna keep that passion to yourself. You wanna give that passion to other people so that people in your organization can also uh, learn how to be good organizers. So, so thank you for asking about that because I'm proud of the work that I do with the Leaders Network. I'm part of the, proud of the partnership with the Leaders Network and the All-Stars Project and Collaboration and All-Stars Project and so many other partnership partnership activities that we're doing um, you know, here in the city of Chicago. I risk going uh, through a tangent with this one. Um, one thing that has been interesting for me is that, uh, I will be honest with uh, all three of you, I I think that for me, Dylan, in real life, I. Uh, I still think that I would say that I'm agnostic. And so I, I would identify as non-religious. That being said, through uh, doing Amen, Amen and uh, other plays of yours, Wanda, and uh, David, just listening to some of these experiences that you're talking about. Um, one thing that has been highlighted to me as of late that I think uh, 
I think that honestly, a lot of people, particularly in my generation, might not fully understand because um, for, for many reasons, but is that um, from my outside perspective, it's been highlighted to me, right, churches and uh, religious groups can can do all sorts of things. And a lot of those things can really be like social justice centered. Where I'm coming from with that is that honestly, um, I had a, like a brief time in my senior year of college where I was going to uh, a church that um, I later ended up leaving because I was brought in with the first uh, sermon that I heard that was about uh, God loves you and uh, God's love is overwhelming and, and everlasting and that type of stuff. And then a couple months into the sermons, there came another one where the pastor went on a rant about a book called My Two Moms and how it's a really bad book and how it shouldn't be taught uh, to kids. Um, and later on, I ended up going a couple of times to a church that was much more uh, open and had rainbow flags hanging from the ceiling. Um, so I don't. I just felt it was an interesting point to raise that for me, from an outside perspective, I have honestly had a moment of learning, oh, right, it doesn't have to be just the one way that I'm used to hearing about with churches or any religious group for that matter. Right. I, I, I want to put my two cents in about the religious issue. Uh, speaking as a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, I, I think that, that one's religious beliefs or non-religious beliefs um, don't have anything to do with your commitment to social justice. Whether you, you pray to Jesus or Jehovah or Allah or to a hundred gods in India, it, you can have a vision of a world that we're talking about where people have what they need and have an opportunity to develop and to, to treat each other with love and respect. And whatever tradition that grows out of uh, is fine with me as long as we're working together for the same things. Um, and to Dylan's point, we all know that there's many religions and churches that have done terrible things over the, the last 2000 years or more. But there are also lots of secular organizations that have done terrible things. And, and what we want to do is find those people, whatever tradition they're a part of, who have a vision of social justice and find a way to work together and learn from each other. So anyway, since you were asking that question, I wanted to share. Yeah, that, that was sort of, sort of my, my moment, my aha moment over like the last year or so. Because I do, my, my experience has been that people sometimes use uh, the church or the Bible to actually speak against things, you know, uh, against other people, you know, their way of life, their way of thinking, their way of being. And I just, I, I, in my core, I don't, I disagree with that. So I was very, very happy um, when I found out that that's not what God is about, you know, and that there are places that do, you know, um, teach that way. I wish my pastor were here, but maybe the next time around. Um, well, he'll be listening. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Um, so why don't we, um, so I guess I want to ask the question, it might be a weird question, but what, what are your thoughts on one day the world being, I don't want to use the word perfect, but um, the world being a just place? What, what are your thoughts about that in terms of, do you think that's ever going to be possible? And or do you think it's going to be possible in all lifetimes? Just, what do you think? Let's start with Dan. <laughs> certainly, certainly not in our lifetimes. That's okay. for sure. Okay. Nor do I think the world will ever be perfect. I think that everything that changes in the world, and there have been qualitative changes. I mean, we once had slavery in this country. Now we don't. But there's a legacy that gets carried over from all the injustices. And no matter what changes we make, there'll be parts of that still there that we have to, to engage. I think that it's a very long process. I think it's a I think it's a historical cultural process. You know, um, a lot of times people who consider themselves social justice activists think, well, we just have to overthrow this government or overthrow this economic system. Or, and, and yes, we probably do, but we're a long, long way from that where, when we have cultural attitudes and, that we have now. And, and by that, I, don't, I, I mean, of course, racism and, and, and sexism and homophobia, but I also mean the commitment to individualism and com competition and looking out for number one and, um, and thinking that we're all individuals rather than that we're all connected. These are deep-seated cultural attitudes that grew out of the economic systems that we have built, but have huge power over our minds and over our hearts. And creating an environment where those can be engaged 
is what I think we need to do. It's a it's a it's a cultural revolution. Now, the the, the comparison I'm going to make to the Renaissance is not at all exact, but they did go through a couple of hundred years where they moved out of the Middle Ages and of this very superstitious way of looking at the world, and instead embraced embraced ration, rationality and science and so on, which was a big step forward, in my opinion. But it's not enough. Now we've reached the limits, I think, of what we can do with rationality and science. And I think we have to move beyond that and return, in a sense, to the roots that the indigenous people all over the world are telling us about, which is being connected to the planet as a whole. And, and that means not using gas and oil and coal to kill the earth and extract its wealth, but finding a way to build with the earth. And that's a huge change though. And I think it's gonna take a lot of work, which is why I feel really good about my life as a cultural activist. Cause I think in, in some way it's a cultural revolution that we need before there can be a realist, a, a political and economic transformation. Now they don't, it's not that there's, I don't think of it as, First this, then that. I think it all happens at the same time. But I do think a prerequisite for social change is that we engage the social and cultural biases and issues and worldviews that that are holding us back. And I think that's in a, in a way what the All Stars is about, what David is talking about. And it might be a you know a particular framework of young people from poor neighborhoods just realizing they don't have to be stuck in the categories that this oppressive society puts them in. Um, that's a huge step, but there's a lot of huge steps that have to be taken in all parts of the world. And I think it's, I think that the, the, one of the things that's going to have to go in the long run is the nation state, there being a United States and an India and a China. And we, 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 we can break through those borders. We're all human beings, but it's going to take a lot of dialogues like this and a lot of building things together to get there. So I'm a very... You know, my, my whole life is about changing the world. So I would, uh, I'm very hopeful in that sense, but I'm also, you know, I come from, I'm a third generation social activist. My, going back to the turn of the 20th century, my, my, my grandfather was, a, you know, an activist and a communist. And so I know it's a long haul and I know that we make a lot of wrong, wrong we can make a lot of wrong turns, which we did in the 20th century. Um, but I think if we if we approach things in, as a cultural historical process, we have a chance. And and just to touch on David's thing about performance, part of the way to engage that is to perform, to realize that we don't have to be stuck in the attitudes that we were taught and in the visions that we were uh, shaped by. We were shaped by society, but we have the power through performing to reshape it. One point, you know, I thought that, um, um, you know, I, 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 I thought I would see it, you know, the brighter day, you know, because, you know, when I was a child, you know, April 4th, 1968 was the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, so that night and the days after they kept playing excerpts of his last speech, you know, in which he talked about, um, you know, um, you know, that, uh, you know, about his, about, about going to the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. And he delivered that speech on April 3rd. The next evening, he was shot to death. And I remember feeling the sadness that Dr. King wasn't going to see that promised land himself. But I thought, you know, me and my family would, you know, and again, mm -hmm. I was seven years old, I, I turned eight later that year. Um, you know, I remember watching the funeral of Dr. King with uh, my mother. My mother died just 41 days after King's assassination. So she died, um, you know, May 15, 1968. 26 days after that, Robert Kennedy was assassinated while running, while he was running for president. Um, and then over the years, you know, obviously I lost my father. And I said, wow, my father's not going to see the promised land either. And my, you know, lost my, you know, later, much later years, you know, my sister dies of pancreatic cancer. And, you know, and, you know, after I moved to Chicago, I meet a woman here who became, you know, became my wife. And, you know, she died of a brain aneurysm. 
And I thought, man, all these people, I thought at one point, you know, you know, and so many people in our community that Dan knows, you know, that we, you know, have marched together and worked together. We've lost so many people uh, in our community. You know, uh, 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 we just lost uh, someone uh, the other day named Shotzi Weisberger, you know, at the age of 92, you know, but there's so many losses, you know, and, and then, you know, over the last decade, you know, after getting diagnosed with uh, cancer and then with um, uh, two blocked arteries, um, congestive heart failure, and then cancer again this year. I had 44 treatments of radiation this year, you know. So I said, you know, I, after all of that, I said, you know, David, you're not going to see that promised land either, you know. But the best you can do is to keep, um, you know, working with people, to keep organizing people, you know, to see younger people you know, take up the mantle to make the world a better place and to take some uh, comfort in having played a role with, you know, getting that uh, bowling ball rolling down, <laughs> rolling down. I might not see it when the, when, the, when the bowling ball hits the pins, but I can feel some comfort that I got the ball rolling or helped to get the ball rolling, you know, along with, you know, uh, Dan and so many other people, you know, um, and the next generation is going to have to carry that on um, if they choose to. You know, again, everybody has to make a choice on, you know, whether they want to make the world a better place because it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's a, it's a hard thing. There's going to be a lot of opposition. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to discourage you. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to tell you that you should concentrate on living your best life, getting that nice house in the suburbs, forget about everybody else, you know, that you shouldn't you know, be active to try to change the world. But, you know, but I do feel very hopeful that there's enough young people in the world who really do want to make a difference, who are trying to make a difference, who are working to make things better. And those young people will have to take on the next, um, you know, it's like those older people like us, we have to pass the baton to the next generation and the next generation has to decide if making the world a better place and getting rid of racism and getting rid of uh, misogyny, getting rid of anti-Semitism, getting rid of homophobia, getting rid of all the bigotry and creating that better world if that's something that they really want to fight for and try to make into a reality. Again, I'm not going to see it, but you know, I feel very um, pleased that I've played a role with helping to organize people to uh, want to help make the world a better place. Thank you. It's actually a really good segue into uh, what I want to start off with saying, which is that uh, one thing that I often hear from uh, me being 25 years old, one thing that I often hear from like people in my parents' generation uh, when they talk to me about <clears throat> this type of stuff is that they say, Dylan, I have so much hope for what your generation is doing and uh, what is going to happen with you guys, you know, finally coming into running the world. And I don't mean to be a little even more bleak, but I, I will admit that on the one hand where I do also feel that hope, on the other hand, I'm also saying on the same note, not going to be completely done in our lifetime either. Like, <laughs> I have a feeling that like when I'm in my, in my seventies, I will be in this, like, I'll be looking at my kids, kids and be saying, dang, yeah, they got to pass that baton now. Like, this is where like, we're at, at that point, um, I'm going to be a little more bleak and then I'll try to bring it back to something, uh, more positive after. But one thing that has really been highlighted to me over the past few years that I don't think even in my education growing up was really taught to me at least in the schools as concretely as it could have been is that the scale of time that we are looking at it's funny because dan brought up uh the indigenous peoples of the worlds and if i'm thinking back to like columbus i'm like wow europeans started forcibly taking land in the americas and subjugating people in every different way hundreds of years ago like that's hundreds of years of uh things that that I think we would all probably argue are is still going on in a lot of ways uh, that we now have to face the monumental task of recovering from right. that does not happen overnight. does not happen in one generation. It does not happen in two generations. It's going to take so long at the same time. 
the one thing that I've also been faced with recently is that I feel if I don't, for me at least, let myself feel some amount of hope about where the future is going, then there's not really much of a reason to keep doing this. And in some ways, not much of a reason to live. So <laughs> I have been facing some comfort in knowing that, dang, I feel like I have to believe that one day, even if it's not my final day, that things really will be at a great point uh, because otherwise, why else would we be doing this? Um, but then also, at risk of sounding corny one more time, I don't give my uh, my school system back home a lot of credit in this area. But one thing I will give them credit for is that the first time I saw MLK Jr.'s uh, I Have a Dream speech was when I was five years old in my classroom. And I think because that was imprinted at me, um, imprinted on me at so such a young age, I couldn't help but feel, okay, this man, and obviously MLK was not the only leader by far at that time, but this man, along with many others, got a giant change to happen that also like affected my life generations down the line. If they can do it, so can I. So I do believe despite the scale of time we're dealing, we're dealing with, there is reason to have hope. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just add that in my way of thinking, hope is not just an, an emotion in your head. It's an activity. And that the more that you build, the more that you work with other people, the more to use David's words, the more you organize, the more hopeful you get. I know that if I hadn't been engaged for the last 40 years in building the All-Stars Project and its sister organizations, I would not be hopeful. But I have built something that I think impacts on the world in a positive way. And that that makes me hopeful. And even if it failed, I would probably have tried something else because you got to keep, that's where the hope comes from, from the activity. Wow, that's um, it's interesting because I think that um, I probably, I agree with that and that the things that I do and the things I'd like to do, things like this and my plays and other things I'm working on, I do feel like I am contributing and I, ask, and I guess it's sort of like getting the ball rolling, right? And um, will it happen in my lifetime? I'm gonna say, I think it probably won't, but I'm gonna fight like hell to try and get it to happen in my lifetime. That's the goal. Um, so I want to thank all of you for participating, being the first for the first group to do this in our series. Um, and um, I'm hoping for you all watching this out, out in the out world that you're appreciating this conversation, that it motivates you to find how you can be the justice and social justice in your world. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.